0: Well, good morning. My name is Neil Chotai, pastor of Church Life, and if you have your Bibles ready, Bible apps, please go to Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. Uh, Before we dive into scripture and go verse by verse, I'd like to look at our past, going to look at family trees. Don't worry, I'm not going to look at your family tree because I'm sure there are skeletons and they're just like mine, you know, the crazy uncle we all know about. Um, But uh, we need to look at our biblical heritage, our family tree, and it is so important for us to do that because It helps us in our personal discipleship, and it enriches us in our relationship with God. And to to truly appreciate this biblical account, uh, we need to be conscious and appreciate what has happened that led to this moment. So we're going to go way, 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 way back, many centuries ago, when God created everything. And my thing's not working here. Oh my goodness. There we go. Okay. When God created everything. Okay. And on the sixth day, God created the best. He created the apex. He created man and out of man came Eve. God had given the garden of Eden to Adam and Eve and they could have whatever they desired in there. And God was there to bless them and give the, to their needs. And it was a great time. Well, unfortunately, Satan comes in, tempts Eve, tempts Adam, and something cataclysmic happens in the universe. The relationship between God and humanity is ruptured, and Adam and Eve are banished from the Garden of Eden. Now, before they are banished from the Garden of Eden, God gives a, promises, a promise in Genesis 3 and says, basically, that I will make a way for the relationship to come back together so the years go by and adam and eve are in the world contaminated by sin and the population grows and in genesis 6 we find out that the world is populated and the heart of every single man and woman and child is evil every single desire that they had was totally full of evil so much so that god grieved that he even created adam and eve and their descendants but there was one righteous man named Noah. And Noah and his family were the righteous ones. Now, the sinful people had to be punished. And, and, and there was punishment that took place. So God told Noah, build an ark. Put the animals, I will bring them to you into the ark. Put your family in it. And all of a sudden, the waters from the deep and something called rain fell. And this is what happened. A flood hit the earth. And God was basically resetting certain things in the world. But through Noah and his descendants, God would, again, try to form a relationship with humanity. As long as humanity is listening. God is always trying to have a relationship with humanity. But it is humanity that is kind of like saying, well, I don't know. But God used Noah. Well, the population grows. And it grows. People of like-minded um, uh, speech go in and in, form the nations around the world, and different cultures come together, and it's during this time that we have God calling out to a person named Abraham. So Abraham was probably located in this area here, what we call present-day Iraq, and it was he came from a city called Ur. God met. Abraham it said to Abraham, "Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation," uh, says a whole many other blessings, And one of the blessings is, "Through you all nations will be blessed." So God tells Abraham, "I want you to move to the land I'm giving you." So Abraham and his family moved to the place called Canaan, which is present-day Israel and the surrounding area. Now Abraham is married to Sarah and they have a child, a son named Isaac, and Isaac gets married to a woman named Rebecca, and they have two children, and the younger one is more prominent than the other, and his name is Jacob. When reading the Old Testament, you may have heard the the saying, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, Jacob also has another name. God renames him Israel. So whenever you see Jacob and Israel in the Old Testament, it can refer to either the land of Israel or the person named Israel, or Jacob. And Jacob and Israel are synonymous. That is are the same. So they are living in the land of Canaan. Now, there's a famine in the land of Canaan. And there's no food around. So Jacob, also known as Israel, takes his family to a place called Egypt. Now, they're able to go to Egypt because one of Jacob's sons... Joseph is already there, and he has become the prime minister of Egypt. That story in the book of Genesis is absolutely fascinating. I, I encourage you to read it. Um, it's a great, great story of God's providence and God's care about, for, for the people. So they go to Egypt. They are in the land of Goshen. The Pharaoh at the time is welcoming to the Israelite family, and they grow in numbers, and they grow. And they grow. Well, time passes, political administrations change, and then an evil pharaoh, 400 years comes to power, doesn't like this population of the Israelites. So what does he do? He enslaves the people to build the mighty Egyptian dynasty. And the children of Israel cry out to God and say, God, hand us a deliverer. Please bring us a deliverer. And God answers their prayer. And he brings about a person named Moses. And then Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea and about to approach the promised land of Canaan. Moses dies and and a person named Joshua becomes the leader of the people. And they take the promised land. They take the land that was given to them by God. And there are these battles that take place, but they overcome the enemy. But then Joshua dies, and there's no clear leader, so God raises up these judges. And these judges aren't like, you know, if you watch Judge Judy, nothing like that. These are people who rightfully lead Israel at different times. Now, Israel is really a, a, a bunch of just 12 tribes together. They're not really a cohesive one group. And God will raise up these judges. And the last judge of Israel is a person by the name of Samuel. Now, Samuel was a great prophet as well. Nothing like Moses. Moses was the greatest prophet. But, but Samuel was a really good prophet. And, and the elders of Israel, along with the people, go to Samuel and say, um, Samuel, tell God we want a king like all these other nations around. And Samuel says, I don't think that's a good idea. And he goes to God and God says, no, 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 no. This is supposed to be a theocracy. This is supposed to be where, where God is the one who is the leader of the people. But the people relented, went to Samuel again, and and then Samuel goes to God, and then God says, fine. If they want a king like all the other nations, fine. We'll give them, yes, a king just like all the other nations. In fact, choose that guy named Saul. You know the Saul, the good-looking one? Women want to date him. Guys want to be him. Okay? So Saul becomes king over Israel. Now, Saul was actually a good king at the beginning. He coalesced all the 12 tribes to come together to become the kingdom of Israel. Uh, But at the end, well, even midway, he was a prideful man. He was actually an awful man. And he wanted nothing but power. And he wanted it so much, he even went to a witch, went to the enemy to ask for help. And God says, Saul, I'm not going to be with you forever forever. So I'm choosing another king. So God chooses a person named David. David had a heart after God. Yeah, David did some things that weren't good, but, but he was humble before God and had this relationship with God. God was so impressed with David's commitment to him that God said to David, your descendants will always be on the throne of Israel forever. That is an incredible promise. Well, David, David dies, and, and then we have Solomon. Now, Solomon was given the gift of wisdom. Sometimes he wasn't really that smart because he would make these alliances with other nations around them by marrying their daughters. You know, he was kind of like a Sheldon, Sheldon Cooper smart guy. You know, smart here, but he wasn't that great? really smart. So then, you know, all these things are happening in Israel. But it was the golden age of Israel, Israel, ancient Israel was doing really well. But then Solomon dies as well. And then we have an interesting thing that happens in Israel. What I would like to call the Boam experience. What do you mean by Boam experience? Well, Solomon had a son. And Solomon's son was Rehoboam. He was going to be the next king of Israel. And he was for a certain time. But the other Israelite tribes came together and said, wait a minute, we don't want to follow a descendant of David all the time. No, 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 we have our own guy. And this other guy's name was? Sorry? Jeroboam. Notice the bombs. This bomb actually became a bomb, okay? Because what happened was we had a huge. Divide take place. The United Kingdom of Israel was now thrust into two separate kingdoms. Two separate kingdoms. And it was not good at all. It was actually quite bad. So here you had the ten northern tribes came together. And they decided to keep the name Israel. Now there was about 19 evil kings. They all had evil kings. Evil kings. Northern kingdom, evil, evil kings all the time around. 19 evil kings. And God would raise up prophets like Amos and Hosea and say, turn back to God, turn back to God. But they went against God constantly. They went against the living God. They actually became the kings like all the other nations. Be careful what you wish for. Be very careful what you wish for. And then in 722 B.C., The Assyrian army comes in, wipes them off of the face of the planet. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah, they kept the name Judah. There was two tribes, Benjamin and Judah. So since Judah was bigger, they called themselves Judah. Southern kingdom of Judah, they were a little bit better than the northern kingdom. Not by much because they had a number of kings. They had about uh, 20 kings, but only eight of them were really actually good. Now, when evil kings came to power, God rose up prophets like Joel and Micah and Isaiah and said to them, repent and be with God. Repent and be with God. But they did not listen. And then in 586 B.C., the Babylonians came. And they came and they put the Israelites or the people of Judah, into exile, all the way into Babylon, which we would call present-day Iraq. Now, during this time, there was a remnant. And throughout all this, God is working through the people. He's still speaking to the people. And it's during this time in the exile that God would raise up people like Daniel, Prophet Daniel and Ezekiel, and, and tell them about his plan, that God would have a king that God would restore the people into a relationship with him. Well, the Babylonian empire was taken over by the Medes and the Persians. And during that time, they allowed people to go back to their homeland. So immediately, under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, they moved back to the land of Canaan. They rebuilt the second temple. The first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And now Ezra and Nehemiah are building up a second temple. And while they are there, prophets like Haggai and Malachi, they are talking about God's grace. And they set up their own area of people. Even though it wasn't a nation, it wasn't really a kingdom there or a king to lead them. But they were there. And the people want to hear more about God. But there is nothing but silence. One year goes by, silence. Nobody's talking. God's not speaking to them through a the prophet. Uh, five years go by, ten years go by, decades go by, centuries go by, 400 years of silence. God says nothing. And then in the fullness of time, God spoke through an angel, and that set in motion the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, of a Messiah, of a Savior, the birth of a great king, one who would come from the line of David and who would forever be the king of the people. And today, we look at that passage of Scripture in which this king arrives into Jerusalem. The title of my message is The One True King. Now, this is not just a simple passage of Scripture that's been written, but what we see is we see prophecy unfolding and that is what we are seeing in this passage. My big idea is Jesus fulfills the characteristics of the one true king that we are called to worship. So if you have your Bibles with you, please stand as we read from the book of Mark, chapter 11, verses 1 to 11. As they approach Jerusalem... And came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway, and they untied it. Some people standing there asked, And went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. You may be seated. So let's dive into the scripture. So here we have Mark 11, 1. And as they, this is Jesus, plus the disciples, plus a crowd that was coming with him. So they approached Jerusalem... And they come to the area of Bethphage and Bethany. And it's at the Mount of Olives. And for the Mount of Olives, you can see Jerusalem. You can see the Temple Mount. You can see the Temple. And he has a mission for two disciples that are not named. And he gives them this instruction. He says, saying to them, go to the village ahead, probably Bethany. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever written, untie it and bring it here to me. Now, Jesus said those instructions, and those instructions to the disciples, you're probably wondering, this is quite strange. What is Jesus doing here? Like, why is he telling us to do this? And and it sounds strange to us as well. But this is to fulfill prophecy. And in this message, we're going to see a lot of Old Testament prophecies and references to the Old Testament here. Because when we go to Zechariah 9, 9 in the Old Testament, it says, rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. This is Israel. See, your king comes to you. He is righteous, victorious, lowly. Oh, wait, riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's there to... It's there to fulfill the prophecy that was given centuries before. The prophecy in Zechariah actually has deeper roots in the Old Testament. It goes back to Genesis 49. And back in Genesis 49, we have Jacob. Now, remember Jacob? Okay, so we have Abraham, his son Isaac, and then his son Jacob. Jacob. The God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when we go to Genesis 49, this is the blessing Jacob is giving to his son Judah. This is important here because this is the blessing. It says the scepter. Scepter is important because it has to do with royalty. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Why is that important? Well, because one of Judah's descendants was A guy named David. And one of David's descendants was Jesus. Goes on. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of all of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine. His colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine. And in the blood of grapes. Which some believe could be referring to what happens on the cross a little bit later on in the week in this passage of Scripture. So it's deeply rooted in Old Testament. It goes back not just to Zechariah, but goes to Genesis itself, which is really important for us to know. Also, the donkey was never ridden upon. That's an important thing, and we am going to talk, tell you in a minute why. We go to verse 3. It says, Jesus says, goes on further and says, If anybody asks you, why are you doing this? Just say, hey, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. And when we look at the next few verses, we see exactly everything that took place. They found a colt outside in the street, tied to a doorway. They untied it. And some people there, they asked, what are you doing? Why are you taking the colt? And they answered, just as Jesus did, because when Jesus tells you to do something and say something, you say it. Okay? And the people let, let it go. Just as Jesus said it would happen. Now we go to verse 7. So when they bring the colt to Jesus, this is what the disciples do. They threw their cloaks over it. You know what the significance of it was? They were making a saddle. That's it. That was the significance. They were making a saddle for Jesus to be comfortable on the colt. But as they're doing this, Scripture says that spawn, like just right away, the people spread their cloaks on the road and others palm branches. This is usually a Palm Sunday message. But they're spreading the branches that they had just cut in the field. The reaction of the people was actually very spontaneous, full of spontaneity. And, and, and here it is, they're, they're seeing Jesus come in. And this is absolutely incredible. Like, this is the guy that's going to take over the Roman Empire, and we're going to be free, even though that's not the reason why Jesus was doing this. And they're paying royal homage to Jesus as he's coming in. In fact, Jesus is getting the red carpet treatment here. And when you look in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 9:13, when Jehu of ancient Israel became king, the same thing happened. The people were there. They were ecstatic that the king was coming. And they were paying homage to him, putting their garments down. And as Jesus is on the donkey, uh, there are people around him shouting in joy. And they're saying words like this, Hosanna, which actually means save us. It's interesting they were saying that because what they're saying is save us from political realm that we're in, but Jesus is coming to save them from the spiritual world and the darkness that they are in. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And here is Jesus. He is literally, literally the name of the Lord is coming, and that is Jesus. Now, this passage of scripture refers back to the Old Testament in Psalm 118, 25 to 26. 26. It says, Lord, save us. Hosanna, right there. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. It's interesting that they're welcoming him in the name of the Lord. And they're really welcoming the kingdom as opposed to Jesus himself. But they don't realize it yet at all. And then we go to verse 10. Again, blessed Blessed is the coming of the kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The people are shouting. They are so happy to see this happen. That this person named Jesus is going to to create a kingdom here just for us Jewish people. It's going to be great. He's going to kick Caesar out. This is wonderful. This is fantastic. And the crowd is proclaiming this. But what they're proclaiming is not actually what is supposed to be happening. That's going to happen. See, what they wanted was not what they needed. What they wanted was a political kingdom. What they needed was spiritual liberty through the one true king. And they shout, and they shout, and they shout. From verses one to 10, we have this great feeling of what is happening, that Jesus is coming, he's come to Jerusalem, and they're waving these branches, and almost like we go to verse 11, it's almost like an anticlimax here. Okay, then it just says, well, Jesus just entered Jerusalem. The crowd goes away. So Jesus enters Jerusalem, went to the temple courts. This is where the temple of God is. He looked around at everything. And since it was late, he decided to go back to Bethany, spend the night there with the 12. Now we're going to take a look at that. It may sound insignificant, but there is some significance to that. So as we have gone through the verses of this passage, let's find out what the characteristics are of the one true king. First, sovereign over all. In verses one through six, we see how Jesus is so intentional. God is so intentional that he prepared everything that had to happen with the donkey. He had to prepare all of that Make sure that the disciples get this. See, Jesus has authority over all. Some commentators believe that, well, Jesus was in Jerusalem before, made this happen. I don't believe that. This is God. He has sovereign authority over all. In the craziness of the world that we live in, you may think, God, where's God? You may ask that question. But God is there. He is sovereign in the chaos in the world that we all live in. He is the one true king. Nothing surprises God. God has everything under control. You know what? There were some people, you know, during this transition, relief pastoral transition, you know, don't sweat it. God's in control of it. He already has the person already picked out. It's fine. He already knows. God is sovereign over all, over everything that we are in. Secondly, the one true king is humble. In verse 7, it states that he was on a colt. Why is that significant? The colt, the donkey represents Peace. See, it doesn't say he came on a horse, because if he came on a horse, that's almost like a war, a warrior cry. But he comes on a donkey, which is peaceful. In the passage of Zechariah, it says that he comes lowly, which means he was humble, righteous, victorious. And when you look further back in Zechariah 9.10, it actually says that that God is going to take away the chariots and the war horses from Israel, and he's going to proclaim peace in humility. And that leads us to our next characteristic about the one true king, compassion for people. So the people are there. They're before him. They're beside him. They're behind him. They're proclaiming him as this great king that's going to overthrow Rome. And again, it's not what What they really needed was they need to realize that this overthrow was the spiritual evil that was going to be overthrown, the spiritual kingdom of darkness. They were misguided. Now, remember the story of the rich young ruler. When Jesus Jesus is there, and this rich young ruler comes to him, and and the rich young ruler says, "Well, I've done this, this, and this, and this." And Jesus looks at that rich young ruler, has compassion and love over him. He's misguided. All you have to do is take your stumbling block away of your riches and then come and follow me. Jesus is in the same position here. The people are misguided. Take your stumbling block away from the political realm that you want to something that is spiritual, that is a relationship with God. He has compassion and love over the people. He has compassion over us when we were in a point where we did not know who God was but he chose to have compassion for all of us. Isaiah 49, 13 says that rejoice and sing for joy, for the Lord has comforted his people and has compassion for those who are afflicted. We are afflicted because we have sin in our lives that separates from us from God, but God shows his compassion towards us, and that compassion leads to the next characteristic of the one true king that needs to be worshipped, a power over sin, power over sin. Verses 9 and 10 says, "Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven," which is referenced to Psalm 118. But when you look further back in Psalm 8, 118, this is what it says about the one true king. It says, "He has not given me over to death. Opened for me the gates of the righteous. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter." So he makes us righteous in his blood, in a relationship with Christ through the resurrection. Further, he goes on, I will give thanks for you have answered me. You have become what? My salvation. Further on, he goes, the stone, which is Jesus, that the builders rejected, which is us, has become the cornerstone, which is written in the gospels. And references this passage of scripture. And the Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. That he's not given us over to death. But he is our salvation. So the one true king has power over sin. He has the power to destroy the kingdom of darkness. And that is what happened on Calvary 2,000 years ago with the resurrection. That the one true king is the only one that can do this. And now that brings us to our very last characteristics of the one true king. He restores us to God himself. That is what the one true king does. Now, verse 11 has some significance. In the very last verse, Jesus' Jesus' triumphal entry He's at the Mount of Olives. He goes to the Mount of Olives. Okay, Mount of Olives is high. And you can see the temple here. Now, follow me on this one. It looks across the Kindred Valley, the city of Jerusalem, and that is where the temple is. When Jerusalem fell, when the Babylonians took over Jerusalem, there was a prophet that was given a vision named Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 23... And that vision said this that the glory of God departed the temple it moved eastward near the mountain the glory of God the presence of God is Jesus John 1:14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among the people and here we have the glory of God which is Jesus the flesh has now come back to Jerusalem Book of Hebrews 1.3 says, it describes Jesus as the brightness of God's glory. Jesus descended the Mount of Olives and enters the holy city. When the temple of Jerusalem was gone, when the glory of God left, it now has come back in bodily form through Jesus Christ. But it doesn't just stay at the temple. It's not supposed to be there. Because where is the presence of God today? The presence of God is in a temple, but not a temple. It's in various temples. And that temple is those who are of Jesus Christ. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ. Because what happens when a person becomes saved? They have a relationship with Christ. Immediately the Holy Spirit of God, the very presence of God, the glory of God, comes into that person. For we are temples, not of... Of, of mortar and brick, but we are temples of flesh and blood. 1 Corinthians 6 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? This restoration of humanity is, is with God again. So we come full circle from this point to all the way. Back in Genesis, where God promised that he would bring a deliverer. He would restore this relationship permanently with the people and with God. Salvation restores us to God. And we are sealed in the spirit of God forever. This is the one true king that needs to be worshipped. And not talking about worship on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about worship in our daily lives. How we live our life from Monday to Monday. All the way to Sunday at 9.59 a.m. And then when we leave at 11.30 or something. And so on for the rest of the week. How do we live our life? Is it in worship to the one true king? Do you worship him on a daily basis? Do you actually just stand in front of God? In front of him and just thank him audibly? Thank you for your love. Thank you for your salvation. Thank you for your grace. And to tell him that. We are called to worship the one true king. And in the passage that we have looked at today, the people didn't realize who was coming. But now 2,000 years later, we see the one true king and how he has demonstrated all these things in our lives. The one true king that we are called to worship. He is sovereign over all, humble, humble compassion for people, power over sin, restores us to God. This is something that we must worship. We must have a heart of worship. We must worship God for what he has done for us. And when you look at the Bible from the beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, from the Old Testament to the New, you see the attributes of the one true king everywhere. Everywhere. You know what one of my pet peeves is? I'll be very transparent with you. One of my pet peeves is when Christians only look at the New Testament, and they discard the Old. I'm telling you, as a pastor and a fellow Christian, that's being a poor student in Christianity. That's being a very poor student. And some people say, well, there's judgment in the Old Testament. I'm like, have you not read the book of Revelation? Like, seriously? Oh, there's no grace in the old. What do you mean no grace? God took the Israelite people, took them out of bondage, out of Egypt, into the promised land, fed them. We're there? He was there with the prophets telling them. If God had no grace, he would have eliminated Adam and Eve as soon as they sinned. But God showed his grace. And this is the one true king that we ought to worship every single day of our lives. You know, John 3.16... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You guys have probably memorized it, Memorize it. John 3.16 has its roots in Genesis 3. Because that is where God said, I am going to make a way for restoration, for a relationship. So that you can have a relationship with me forever. That was the plan from the very beginning. And God has done that. This is the one true king that we need to worship. And I want you to reflect on the one true king. Throughout the Bible, I want you to reflect on these words. He revealed these characteristics to us from the very beginning, from the very beginning. In Genesis, it is Jesus that provides the ram to Abraham and Isaac at the altar. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's the high priest. In numbers, he is the cloud by day and the pillar by fire at night. In Deuteronomy, he is our city of refuge. In Joshua, he is the one who breaks down the fortified walls. In Judges, he is our righteous judge. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is our faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of everything that is broken. In Nestor, he is the faithful one at the gate. In Job, he is our redeemer that forever liveth. In Psalms, he is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. In Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, he is our wisdom against the foolishness of this world. In Isaiah, it is Jesus who is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, in Lamentations, he is the one that is weeping over us. In Ezekiel, he's a wonderful fourth-faced man. And in Daniel, he's the fourth man in the midst of the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is my love that is forever faithful. In Joel, he baptizes us with the spirit. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, he is our savior. In Jonah, he is the one that takes the word of God to the Jews and the Gentiles. In Micah, he's a messenger with beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is our avenger. In Habakkuk, he's the watchman that is ever praying for revival among the people. In Zephaniah, he is the Lord, mighty to save. In Haggai, he restores our lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is our fountain. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness with healing in his wings. In Matthew... He is the Christ, the son of the living God. In Mark, he is the miracle worker. In Luke, he is the son of man. And in John, he is the door by which everyone must enter. In Acts, he is the shining light that appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. In Romans, he is our justifier. In 1 Corinthians, he is our resurrection. In 2 Corinthians, he is our sin bearer. In Galatians, he redeems us from the law. In Ephesians, he is our unsearchable riches. In Philippians, he supplies our every need. And in Colossians, he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In first and second Thessalonians, he is our soon-coming king. In first and Second Timothy, he is the mediator between God and man. In Titus, he is our blessed hope. In Philemon, he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and in Hebrews, he's the blood of the everlasting covenant. In James, it is the Lord that heals the sick. In 1 and 2 Peter, he is our chief shepherd. In First, Second, and Third John, it is Jesus who has the tenderness of love. In Jude, he's the Lord coming back with 10,000 saints. And in Revelation, we lift up our eyes and worship, for our redemption draws near. He is King of kings, and he is Lord of lords. This is the one true king who we worship. This is the one true king that we call to. I'd like everyone, all of us to give God the praise and glory as we stand. We're going to stand and pray as we give him the glory today. Because he is worthy of our worship in every single thing that we do. Many times people were asked to pray and they stood praying. So let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace and for your mercy. Father, we should not be standing here having a relationship with you. But you chose, oh God, Father, to have a relationship with us. No matter how much was messed up in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, you showed your grace from the very beginning of time. And we give you the praise and glory for you are worthy. And Father, we await for the day when we can join the angelic choir and say, Holy, holy, holy the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. For you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. Lord God, we know that scripture says in the book of Luke that when the people shouted and praised to Jesus, the religious people, the Pharisees, they told Jesus to tell them to be quiet. And you said, if the people don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. Lord, we will not give the rocks the opportunity to praise your name and give you worship. For we are the ones that are redeemed. And we thank you so much. And we give you the praise and glory. And Father, may we follow you in the way that you must be followed in true worship, when we may never neglect to worship you in the things that we do every single day of our lives as you are leading us into the path that you have destined us with. Be with us now. May you receive all the glory as we worship you in song. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen.